We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players, as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Samo, I, I want to go deep on a topic we touched on in the in the last episode, which is dynasties and then succession. Uh, you've written about a few dynasties in your excellent Bismarck brief. We'll, we'll, we'll link to it. Um, but maybe first we can start at a high level. What, uh, what got you so interested in dynasties? It's not something that people think about a lot today. And in fact, sometimes they stigmatize uh, people who are trying to, to, to build dynasties. Why don't you share more about it? Well, it came out of thinking for a long time about the succession problem, which is the problem of how to find people that both have the needed talent to keep an organization going inherit or acquire from the previous holder of the office everything that's needed uh, to carry on that position in fullness and finally have a long-term interest uh, to stewarding uh, the organization and its mission. It turns out this is a pretty difficult problem and that many people from many organizations have done their best to solve it. Yet over time, all sorts of systems, even systems that seem rationally fully justified, systems that seem profoundly, almost tautologically positive, end up decaying and failing to fulfill these missions. For example, you know, if you propose that there should be a national merit-based testing regardless of origin, right, to uh, put people into an elite educational institution, and then that the government and major organizations should recruit from that elite institution. Like, on paper, rational, rationally, this kind of sounds good, right? There's obviously variation in human talent. Uh, there's obviously should be some impartial metric. Obviously, whoever is selected still needs to be educated and enculturated. Yet, when we look at, say, the Ivy League university system as it exists today, it leaves much to be desired. So systems often, when they're set up, especially if they're meritocratic, right, merit-based, um, and th they, they often have a natural bureaucratic decay function built into them. So that's the first sort of problem. Uh, with that. And the second problem is, uh, you know, it's called, uh, you know, Goodhart's law, uh, you know, when, you know, a, a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So at first, something, you know, uh, might correlate very well, such as, uh, you know, performance on impartial exams with, you know, uh, with uh, being qualified for a position. But over time, as people begin to do things like, you know, test prep studying or whatever, it might come to be very much an inefficient system. And we actually have seen this play out on the big historical picture several times in Imperial China. 
where every time a new dynasty came in, the first thing they did was throw out the old imperial exam system and then very quickly institute a completely new one. And when the completely new one with the new curriculum was set up, it worked marvelously and got talented people from all classes of imperial Chinese society into positions of administrative responsibility or decision-making power. Yet, why, you know, run this forward three, four, five generations. And again, people are memorizing whatever the correct uh, poetry is that is valued by the dynasty, whatever the cultural touchstones are, uh, they're gaming it, right? And today, again, if we look at, say, the Ivy League university system, you have people who have choreographed their entire high school experience and their entire high school biography to be worthy of some of these schools and get into them. And I think that that's Goodhart's law in action. So what does this have to do with dynasties? And, you know, dynasty is a heavy word, right? But really, we're just talking about families. Well, I think it solves the core problems of associated with successful succession quite well. Um, you know, people tend to think of their shortcomings, but consider how do you incentivize someone to transfer not just the official nominal strengths of a position, but the unofficial personal connections uh, that might make a position powerful? Well, if they hand it off to a family member, a child, right? Someone that it was their child or was their uh, relative, these informal ties are much likelier to be passed on because people have uh, a reason, an incentive to do it. And uh, we arguably see this not in very powerful contexts, but in very everyday contexts. Um, you have people who, uh, you know, Lawyers tend to come from lawyer families, right? Doctors tend to come from doctor families. And even in U.S. politics, which nominally is not dynastic, statistically, one of the strongest, uh, you know, the strongest positive predictors of being a governor is being the daughter or the son of a previous governor. So whether we want it or not, people do some of this. They transfer the informal titles. Now, at times, sort of the informal aspects of, you know, power, competence, client network, whatever it is, right, these social connections we all have, because we all rely on other people, we all think, to some extent, as social creatures and rely on other uh, humans in our community, our professional community, our political community, uh, to help us do our job. Uh, because ultimately, you know, we, we are connective tissue more than just pure atomized individuals. As much as we, you know, for some positions, this doesn't matter. And you can just start everything from, you know, from the first square, the start of the playing board. But for other positions, the position becomes unusable without also transferring, uh, whatever the previous CEO, the previous president, the previous, uh, you know, lawyer, uh, you know, head of the law firm had, had used and personal reputations, right? Matter. And there's only a few ways you can transfer that. And familial associations are one of the few that really work. Um, the other one is probably marriage, right? That's an unusual social technology where a personal, uh, personal, personal reputation is transferred between, um, between everyone 
uh, sorry, between everyone involved in the marriage, I guess, both people involved in the marriage for now, though I'm sure California is working hard to expand that definition further. Um, but it's this immensely deep personal choice, right? And, you know, the funny part is anyone who is a parent and has several kids, you realize that while you do shape your kids to some extent, in reality, they are their own people. And they're kind of, they're kind of going to be who they're going to be. You're just trying to help this person and love them. But for some reason, everyone always judges the success of parents by how their children turn out. So there is a transfer there that goes one way that everyone endorses. And sometimes it also goes the other way. We treat the children of prominent people differently. Whether we want to or not, it's completely involuntary. Maybe it's baked into our, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology, right? Our background, we're in the ancestral environment, the status correlated very strongly. Maybe it's a cognitive bias, right? Maybe at the end of the day, most people believe in hereditary explanations for personality variation, for, you know, DNA much more than they admit. Still, we can measure how people respond, right? And there's a something of a halo effect that comes from all sorts of uh, features like being tall, being beautiful, or having prominent relatives, right? Where people rate these individuals more highly. And again, at the end of the day, for some jobs, uh, the halo is part of the job description, right? An actor has to be charismatic. And, you know, maybe a politician has to be charismatic too, right? So, okay, I talked a little bit about social capital and its transfer and why sometimes we shouldn't start afresh, but should just give people some social capital to play around with from the very start. The other reason is I don't think we tend to think about societies very different than our own. And our society has narrated itself as very rational. Again, I talked a lot about the Ivy League university system. Why? Because 70 years ago, uh, you know, the idea that this academic system could be actually somewhat inefficient, that it actually is going to fail at its core mission, um, like that would have been unthinkable. Now it's, it's sort of, I think, inching into the mainstream, right? Criticism of the universities has entered the mainstream very slowly over the last 10 years. Um, but all sorts of other institutions have this premise as well, right? Um, you know, we have lost a lot of the faith we used to have, say, in things like uh, Congress and so on, where a hundred years ago, uh, confidence would have been high on, in that institution as well, because the belief would have been that it's a rational selection mechanism. Uh, and we can go into all sorts of other rational selection mechanisms, such as, you know, okay, we, we believe promotions should be merit based and our company is actually promoting the most competent people and so on and so on. We like this rational grounding of the distribution of, um, of goods, of power, of position. Uh, we want the best person for the best job. Anything that sounds like it'll give the best person, sorry, put the best uh, person for the job in that position we like. It takes a while for us to notice if this story doesn't work. And because of this, because we like these stories so much, we both aspire to 
be a, a merit-driven society and have exaggerated how meritous a society we are. And we have actually erased some cases where much older social structures actually solve these problems surprisingly well. They're modern industrial empires, right? Companies that are worth tens of billions of dollars that are run on basically dynastic principles. And on principles you could explain to a, you know, Egyptian pharaoh or to a medieval king, uh, including full-on, uh, you know, succession struggles, though perhaps a little bit less violent. Well, uh, is a strong, uh, strong opener. I, I want us to look at a few, uh, few examples here. First is the, the New York Times is often critiqued as being a, uh, you know, fifth generation or whatever it is, uh, you know, the Salzburgers sort of uh, dynasty. I'm curious if we could speculate what would the organization be if it weren't if it weren't uh, a, a dynasty and if it had changed uh, if it had changed hands right you know could we imagine Zuckerberg giving Facebook or Meta to, to his kids when, when um, in, in the future um, talk a little bit about the the New York Times and, and what we can learn about uh, dynasties in, the, in that light. You know, the New York Times has now come to be critiqued as a family-owned business. It seems almost obscene or negative that the most important publication in the country would be run essentially uh, partially for the benefit of a family. However, the same family feels that they have a significant legacy stake and that actually they are protecting the Times from a much greater convergence, right? Their view would be that we're actually keeping the times independent because otherwise it would be optimized for short-term profit by external managers. Now, I, I don't think this is quite correct, but I do think that the fact that the New York Times is run uh, by a family, owned by a family, and the family actually does it in a smart way where they have a talent development board run by experts. So basically the New York Times itself provides some experts who run a talent development board for the Salzberger family and look at everyone in the Salzberger family who is undertaking a journalistic or writing career, tracks them and tries to figure out who from the family could become, you know, the publisher. So it's not primogeniture, right? It's actually something smarter. You're uh, taking an external body from the family, still subordinated to the family, and you're letting them pick favorites and play favorites. That solves a whole bunch of, you know, family drama that could have emerged otherwise. And importantly, though, this also means that the New York Times is one of the only multi-billion dollar media corporations in the United States where someone in their early 30s can take the helm, right? We have to, you know, we have to think about how gerontocratic a society we've become in the pursuit of basically, uh, you know, meritocracy in name. We have produced an infinite line of people as society ages to be older and older and older, it means that every, you know the people who are senior this or that remain the senior this or that. And the people who are junior this or that remain junior this or that for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And after them immediately is someone that has been the junior, junior, whatever uh, position for another 10 or 20 years. There's a long line of people who are aspirants to positions 
And they often get there very old, and they're often there for a very short period of time, which results in poor governance. Meanwhile, yes, in families, maybe the older members continue to be very powerful. And if you don't do seniority-based succession, if you do this kind of development talent board, you can hand over the keys to someone that's decently young. Now, I'm going to go through a few examples, right? Like, um, you know, basically the, uh, I don't know, David, uh, David Perpich was the executive in charge of paid products, a board member, and he was the publisher of acquired media properties for the New York Times. The age of his first New York Times position was 33. Uh, Dan Cohen, circulation manager, advertising executive, and eventually board member, was 31. Uh, M- Michael Golden, uh, magazine division executive, publisher of international of the international edition, and then eventually vice chairman, was 35. These ages would have been normal in the sort of uh, corporate environment of America of the 70s. But everything that's happened since, right, they've sort of kept the same age, the sort of early 30s age for very high positions, uh, even as the rest of the country has in the pursuit of meritocracy pushed these things up to the 40s and 50s. So the immediate result for the New York Times is this. All other major publications in the United States went the same crisis that the New York Times was in five, six, seven years ago. The crisis was basically a massive drop in advertising revenue and a difficulty of adapting to the digital environment, right? That was like a big thing from about 2001 to 2015, I would say. The New York Times is currently a profitable company. And a lot of this was a uh, A.G. Salzburg, who was fairly young and digitally literate, working with excellent people who are also digitally literate, basically publishing together an internal memo that leaked actually out of the Times, arguing that the old-timer reporters were sort of wrong and that actually they should do digital-first marketing. And today, the New York Times has an impressive share, right? Like if we look at some of these uh, market numbers, uh, they're, they're pretty interesting, they have 9.3 million individual paying subscribers. Uh, you know, its closest competitors, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, have fewer than 3 million paid subscribers. Uh, the New York Times is, you know, as of 2021, it had a market capitalization of $5.6 billion. And again, they're turning a profit. They've been turning a profit for the last while. So, the failing New York Times of 2016, uh, you know, as Donald Trump called it, it's no longer failing. And the reason it's not is because a young person came in that actually understood the situation. They actually understood that what they have is a brand name and what they have are a number of people who will subscribe to their digital services, etc. Right. So that kind of pivot, I don't think could have happened with a 60 year old executive. That, that, that's really interesting. Um, there's this greater tension that you sort of alluded to earlier in the idea of meritocracy, which is this idea of, hey, if I've done you know, so great in my life, why shouldn't I be able to give my kids uh, the ad- advantages that I've worked hard for? But at the same time, we also expect 
uh, there to be the clean slate in this idea of equality of opportunity. And so the idea of legacies is, is uh, an, an anathema to, uh, to, to, to many people because it seems to cut across. And, and also the idea of, you know, sort of picking within the family also seems to be an anathema in the sense that, that, you know, excludes, you know, so many people. And maybe it's no coincidence that uh, one of the most popular shows of the last few years, Succession, is sort of a parody of a dynasty, or, or makes the dynasty look look uh, look really incompetent, as opposed to uh, a very competent dynasty, which is perhaps what we see with the, with the Salzburgers. I feel like you know the Office already parodied the non-dynastic dysfunctional organization. So we should remember that every time we complain about bureaucracy, we are complaining about again notionally super rational systems that anyone could go into. And then you just spend time there. It's like prison or something. It's like the more time you've done there, eventually you get your turn, right? And I think all of these, like, all of these other systems that aren't based on an individual decision of who gets to fill a role, anything that's committee based or standardized rubric based, they will fall into this parody version of themselves. They will become the office. They will become like a prison sentence. You will be there in the office for 20 or 30 years and you'll just wait for your moment of seniority because that's what beats office politics. Not all alternatives to this are dynastic, but uh, dynasties tend to have much less of this problem, right? Other variants exist as well. I think Botswana is a very interesting example, right? People don't think of African countries as well-governed, uh, but actually there are a few that are very interesting examples of good governance. Here it is, this landlocked country uh, with revenue mostly dependent on diamond exports that, however, has had good economic growth and has more political stability than Greece. And actually has uh, all sorts of other positive indicators. It navigated the Cold War while being right next to basket cases such as Zimbabwe and like hostile, uh, powerful countries like South Africa. You know, apartheid South Africa had had, Botswana had a, a notable disagreement with it. And politically, there was always a tension there. And not to mention, you know, the very common problem of communist insurgencies, which were again the case during the Cold War. Now, Botswana is, is a republic, but we can push this political idea of dynasties into the modern world and, you know, resurrect it from, uh, you know, the dustbin of history by observing that every single president of Botswana has been the vice president of the previous one since independence. It's a very small country, a few hundred thousand people. The talent pool is not that big. And the political alchemy of this is beautiful. I would analogize it to uh, the five good emperors in the Roman Empire, where succession for the imperial title didn't go by direct familial inheritance, nor did it go through civil wars, nor did it go through the Senate, but an emperor made uh, you know, a political rival or ally, the second most politically powerful person in the empire, uh, their son, they adopted them. Right? The practice of adult adoption was allowed by Roman law. Actually, the Romans were unusual. You could adopt someone to continue your family legacy, someone unrelated uh, by, by blood. And uh, a lot of ancient societies didn't allow this. The Romans did because they valued family so much and because they didn't want a chance fact of biology 
like, uh, you know, sterility or something to get in the way of a family legacy continuing. But the political alchemy of that was that during the five good emperors period, um, you know, you could make your greatest political enemy, your greatest political ally. Through that simple act, you credibly committed to making them your successor. And suddenly they weren't incentivized to undermine you, but if anything, to rescue the uh, positives of your project and the positives of your administration and repair the negatives you might leave behind. So not tearing the house down, building it up. And in Botswana, that's exactly what's happening. And we can contrast that with a lot of other post-colonial states in Africa. Now, of course, the country benefited from a few other things. They had a well-trained civil service, etc. Some of the same things people might say about Singapore or Hong Kong or other more positive aspects of the British Empire with the impartial, not ethnically biased civil service and so on. Still, I think their unique approach to succession has actually given them a lot of strength. Now, you can pick whoever you want. It's a personal decision. I think executives should probably just pick the next executive after them. I think that's actually a fairly good system of succession in a company or in an organization. Still, about half of the presidents of Botswana since independence have been members of the traditional royal family of the Tswana people. So, okay, is this, this is a semi-hereditary adoptive monarchy. And again, maybe the Salzburger family has something figured out because they also don't just pick any random kid. They pick the best qualified from that batch, right? So, um, I really, I really do think that there is something about the collaboration of the transfer of power and the collaboration of the transfer of administrations that's important. And this is also perhaps something that people, when they first conceived of republics, understood quite well. Um, you know, one interesting detail is that uh, the U.S. founding fathers at one point imagined a system where the president would be the winner of the election and the vice president would be sort of the loser of the election so that there would be almost two executives, each from opposite parties that would have to sort of work together. They didn't even want there to be a party system, right? And that had some precedent in the Roman system. There were two consuls, not one. So again, this, uh, this idea of aligning incentives for succession, I think this can beat a small difference in SAT scores easy, right? Maybe it's worth sacrificing five points of SAT score or 10 points or 20 to get that positive handoff. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them. Over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. 
Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. I want to look at two other families and see what lessons we can learn from them. So one is the the Lee family of, of Samsung, and the other is the Wallenberg family of Sweden. And I find it interesting because in, in some ways, we both couldn't imagine that in the U.S. of, uh, of a family controlling uh, or influencing, you know, uh, such a big tech company. Uh, like we wouldn't expect that, you know, Jobs, uh, you know, to pass it to, to his kids in, in, in the same way, a company like Apple. Or we, we also wouldn't expect uh, such a, you know, family to have such, uh, you know, undue influence over over the country um, as uh, as the Wallenbergs have over, over Sweden, perhaps. So what what uh, what. Why don't you share a little bit more about both those examples and, and what lessons we, uh, you know, we could draw from them? Well, first, um, you know, we could talk about South Korea, right? South Korea is a pretty big economy and Samsung is a giant of a company. The Samsung Group uh, is this conglomerate that, uh, you know, is made up of 61 um, affiliated businesses. They together make up 20 percent of south korean gdp like 20 percent. there's no comparable american company the american company with the largest share of the economy is uh, walmart which does happen to be family owned as well but i think it's like a measly two or 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 three percent and uh i think it's the largest largest employer um in the u.s uh the Annual revenues are something like $233 billion for Samsung. And Samsung, of course, keeps up with all of the technological innovations that we might think of as the cutting edge of technology, right? Uh, their phones are fairly good. They, they invest in chip fabs and so on. The key aspect of the family succession there is, again, there is hand-picked succession, the company demonstrates that you can run a efficient and complicated business this way. And there is a sort of back and forth between the government and the company itself, where basically almost every South Korean government just puts the CEO of Samsung or the future CEO of Samsung into prison. And then they allow them in prison to meet with their lawyers for as much as they want for as long as they want, for eight hours. So you have this absurd situation where the waiting heir of the Samsung dynasty is technically in prison and tells his lawyers everything about how to run the company. And then they go out of prison and they convey, uh, you know, all of this stuff to, uh, to the company. And of course, there's, there's other arrangements like house arrest and so on, but it's almost theatrical. I think if someone made a show called Succession, again, in the United States, they should just present how South Korea works and would blow everyone's mind. Because again, this country that has, that makes the world's uh, cheapest, most advanced nuclear reactors, uh, that makes some of the most advanced robotics in the world, uh, that keeps up in terms of the quality of its electronics with American giants like Apple and so on. It's, it's run on this almost medieval uh, blueprint. And the result of it is partially that the South Korean government does kind of show uh, the Lee dynasty over and over again, who's boss, right? So, so this, this family is actually 
somewhat balanced in power with the civilian government. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the succession went relatively smoothly in 1987. Uh, Lee Kun-hee's succession of his father happened then. Jay Lee's succession has been less successful. So in 2012, Jay Lee was serving as Samsung's chief operating officer and was promoted to vice chairman. In 2014, Lee Kun-hee had uh, an, an incapacitating heart attack and Jay Lee became the de facto leader of Samsung. In 2017, uh, Jay Lee was arrested, charged, and convicted of bribing the president of South Korea in order to secure approval for a merger of Samsung affiliate companies. So that sort of is this kind of almost real imprisonment that happened there. However, it was something that was overcome. The South Korean economy ultimately rests on companies like Samsung. It is a very consolidated and vertically integrated economy. You can slap the leaders of such large companies on the wrist, but you don't dare actually keep them in prison. You don't dare actually disowning them. You don't dare actually breaking these companies up because why? As soon as you do that, the beautiful economies of scale and efficiencies that these large companies have that allow them to have competitive exports are gone. And what are you left with then? South Korea, 50 million people, possibly impoverished, possibly getting much older. So there's a reality here where there's almost an escape velocity of too big to fail becomes its own dynamic. Now, I think this isn't unique to dynasties. I think in the United States as well, there's some companies that are too big to fail. And actually boards mismanage such companies quite profoundly. And we can perhaps talk about those examples some other time. Still, uh, you know, that one of the interesting things about this is that it's very hard to beat consolidation. Samsung is legitimately just a good company. Its exports are legitimately just better than the exports of many other highly integrated conglomerates around the world. So we might like competition, but the question is always competition at which scale. And, you know, a company the size of Samsung might face realistic competition if it was part of a larger country, such as China, or a larger economy, such as that of the United States. Within South Korea, you know, if you break it apart, all you're going to achieve is lower competitiveness for South Korean exports. So... I guess a lesson there is outsiders and outside competitors for your company. If you can get yourself into a position, your company or your organization where you don't necessarily, you know, where removing you causes more damage than slapping you on the wrist, uh, then you're golden. Then your succession is secured. That's a really interesting, um, series of lessons to, to, to take, why don't we now transition to the, the Wallenberg family and why don't you unpack what makes them so special and what we can. 
I mean, it's very interesting to talk about it because that's that's a different situation. For South Korea, you could almost say South Korea made cyberpunk real, right? Because it basically has these, uh, you know, giant corporations. And we, of course, expect that the, the corporate culture is a little bit ruthless, etc. Sweden, on the other hand, brands itself as this, you know, very friendly, egalitarian country, a social democracy where everyone has relative equality. And in this country, it's rather surprising that they would be a major uh, you know, a major company or a series of companies that's owned by a single family. But the interesting thing is that Sweden's great families control large sectors of industry and commerce through asset holding companies. This is done either directly or through foundations. Now, in European capitalism, it's fairly common to have a family foundation own a for-profit company. And unlike the United States, the foundations can argue and even advertise and lobby on behalf of the for-profit company. This is the case in Germany, for example. This is the case in, I believe, Denmark and Norway and so on. So the Wallenberg family is by far the most prominent of these families in Sweden. Its main holding company, Investor AB, is the most valuable publicly traded company in Sweden. It has a market capitalization of over $60 billion as of May 2022. That's equivalent to 10% of Sweden's entire GDP. So again, a huge number, not quite as impressive as South Korea's 20%, but pretty big. Sweden's social democracy rests on high taxes, but the high taxes for such a small country are only viable for these uh, high value added companies that do very well on international exports. Sweden has to be competitive. It has to export a lot of uh, a lot of finished products for it to be able to afford uh, its social programs of various kinds. Per capita, Sweden is one of the greatest exporters of weapons in the world. Uh, per capita, you know, uh, would they earn, I think, slightly more than Israel, for example, which might surprise many people. Now, of course, they until recently were a neutral country, which was very important during the Cold War because you could sell, uh, you know, weapon systems to anyone, not just Western allies. They also have a few very advanced companies that occasionally even beat American companies for various, um, you know, orders, government orders in the defense sector. Usually when a European and an American company compete in the defense sector, the American company wins, and that's played out in NATO uh, many times over. Uh, Swedish companies manage to, to meet that standard of quality. The government understands that, say, breaking up these companies, for example, let's look at this. You say that a company should be run basically for its shareholders and you wrestle the control out of this big company, that's 10% of Swedish GDP, or rather in this case, it's a collection of companies that together say make up that percentage. You wrestle it out. You say it has to be run um, for profit. Uh, you immediately are of course exposed to international capital markets. These markets will not optimize for producing as much as possible in Sweden in particular. They will rather optimize for the most economically rational returns, which might mean uh, economic moves that basically reduce the tax base 
of Sweden, uh, or at least, you know, don't pursue its advantage as an export power. On the other hand, if you keep these as large consolidated companies and you make them state owned, you've introduced a big political problem. You've introduced the political problem that every single party, when it wins an election, will try to put its cronies in charge of the state owned corporations. This is the reason that most Eastern European governments, they've done better uh, the more they have privatized away from state ownership because they eliminate this very juicy position that could be fought over and could be the source of corruption. So in Sweden, then you can have, again, um, a real ruling political party that is not run on dynastic principles and a major chunk of the economy run again, basically on dynastic principles. And because it's run on dynastic principles and because no one seriously thinks about expropriating them, both because it would hurt competitiveness and because it would introduce an instant political fight of, well, if it's not the Wallenberg family that's in charge, then which of us should be in charge? And then that fight opens its own can of worms, right? Now, I talked about Sweden having a ruling party, right? It's, again, it is a democracy, but much like in Japan, it is an unusual democracy where in the 90 years between 1932 and 2022, Sweden has had a social democratic prime minister for 73 years. So 73 out of 90 years. So whenever we talk about an establishment here in the United States or in some other countries or by a, a dual party consensus, uh, Japan and Sweden have almost a uniparty, a single party consensus. Now, these are parties that still receive democratic pressures of various kinds. You can see in various polls that say issues such as immigration have driven a rise in uh, Swedish more nationalist parties over time. This forces the main party to adjust its position. So there is still something of a difference between a dominant party that almost always wins elections and a party that just is in charge because that's the law. Right. So there is still a difference here between that and the Chinese system. However, again, uh, the pursuit of basically a well-run, competent organization often involves locking down destructive fighting over that organization more than it does finding the absolute best person. We like competition, and there's certainly creative destruction, but not all competition and not all destruction is creative. It can just be negative. And especially for these companies, again, once they pass a certain threshold where they're too big to fail and so important for the national economy, you know what? Maybe actually having a somewhat independent economic dynasty controlled part of it is a politically way better solution than having it be this, you know, big bone that all the political dogs fight over and possibly tear apart in the process. And so maybe in closing, do you think we in the U.S. should be more uh, dynastic or or, or um, have more reverence for, 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 for dynasties and, and uh, practice them a bit more in terms of how we, uh, how we run our companies or, or even part of our country. Of course, you know, we had the, the Bushes and the, and the, and the Clintons, um, or any, any closing thoughts on, uh, 
on that. And the Kennedys. Yes, of course. Well, um, you know, I think that when it comes to political office, the argument can be harder to make. I highlighted Botswana because Botswana is a small country with a limited talent pool. There's only so many people uh, that can run a government well, and they might as well work together rather than creating, you know, half of a functional team is no functional team at all, right? The U.S. is a vast country. It has a lot of talent. You can have multiple competent administrations of it. I think that having dynasties in the economic domain should be allowed in the United States and should be valorized. In the United States and the Western world in general, we seem to be content to let people inherit wealth and enjoy it on meaningless things such as yachts, partying, or ineffectual uh, progressive activism. We get very upset at the idea of wealthy people picking among their kids uh, someone to just run it rather than handing it over to eminently qualified people like Harvard MBAs. But in my opinion, these are people who have the strategic advantage of youth. We should be grateful for the human impulse inbuilt into us by the universe itself for us to move aside for our own children because it eliminates so much of the destructive competition that would happen if a powerful, wealthy old person, such as, I don't know, let's say Bill Gates, were to make way for a young, uh, unrelated individual. If it's a young, related individual, right, we naturally tend to want them to thrive. If we're, you know, normal, uh, well-adjusted moral people, we want our children to thrive. So we want to help them. And from the perspective of wider society, you know, if the children are incompetent and they run a company into the ground, you know what? There'll be a different company. So the economic argument for dynasties is very strong. Very young people will, without much strife, acquire full control of companies that will allow them to do things, sometimes things that, are need, that need doing, such as firing uh, people who are difficult to fire or completely changing the business model like the New York Times did. And when the young people succeed, this is good because we have large organizations moving with the times, moving to a literally new generation. And when they don't, it means that the uh, networks that have formed between the managerial class in the United States are disrupted. Instead of having this national sort of pseudo-economic elite of basically, you know, McKinsey consultants hiring each other, uh, you would have families that are much more rooted in individual states, cities, or industries. And I think because of that, in the economic sphere at least, we should encourage this development. I also claim people won't be thinking just about the next quarter or the next year. They'll be they will start thinking about the next decade or the next century if they know that what they personally build can be safely handed off to their kids. That's a good place to wrap. Uh, Demo, thanks for uh, a gr another great discussion. And uh, until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, 
the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 